Thanks for joining with us today for Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith. And I'm Tenery Taylor. I have an acquaintance whom I've been told if you ask her for a recipe for one of her specialties, she'll give it to you, but she'll leave something out. Not so that the recipe will fail, but just so that it won't be exactly the way that she makes it. You know, this sometimes happens inadvertently when you've moved out and you're trying to make your mom or dad's special dish. So you call them up and, and they just guess at the instructions because they've never written it down exactly. And, and maybe that's not a big deal because that's how you create your own specialties. But let's think about ancient arts and crafts. Because the need for ancient crafts changes and because young people sometimes can't be persuaded to do something the old way, or for many other reasons, we can lose entire art forms. A Vermont boat builder discovered that was happening to ancient boat building in Japan, and he set out to learn and document vanishing craftsmanship. He's Douglas Brooks, and he's the author of Japanese Wooden Boat Building. He joins us now. Welcome to Constant Wonder. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Why does a guy from Vermont care so much about traditional Japanese boat building? Well, I... In truth, I'd, I'd say that it was uh, a series of happy accidents. Um, my college roommate was from Japan. Uh, uh, he comes from Hiroshima originally, and we were roommates together at the University of Oregon. And um, after graduation, he started to beg me to visit Japan, which actually I, I really was a country I didn't have any interest in visiting. Um, and so this went on for several years. I got involved in traditional wooden boat building, uh, working at the National Maritime Museum in San Francisco, where I worked in the museum small boat shop and, and eventually became the museum boat builder there. I was building replica vessels, uh, building replica boats for the public, uh, teaching boat building workshops, helping the curator oversee the boat collection of the museum. And right after I left that job, um, my uh, my Japanese friend sent me a plane ticket. And, <laughs> Very persuasive. Uh, and yeah, well, there was a note that said I had just let him know that I had left my job um, at the Maritime Museum, and he immediately sent the plane ticket with a note that said, now you have no excuses. <laughs> and so in 1990, I went to Japan and really just went as another, you know, young backpacker, uh, visiting the major cities and looking at the temples and the shrines and uh, the big tourist sites. But I happened to meet some boat builders, and I happened to see various wooden boats. And, of course, that was something that I don't ever get tired of looking at. Um, and in the course of meeting several elderly boat builders that first trip, what started to emerge was this picture that traditional boat building in Japan was was only practiced by elderly craftspeople, and almost none of them had taught apprentices. And the entire craft had always been taught only through the master-apprentice relationship, um, which is just very, very different than in the West, where uh, people in the West have lots of books, workshops, classes, boat building schools. You know, there are all kinds of non-traditional ways to learn the craft in Europe and America, Australia, New Zealand, and elsewhere. But that was not the case in Japan. I mean, it felt very ancient. And it was, it, frankly, it, it shocked me uh, that that was the way the craft was renewed. But the danger in that is once you lose a generation of apprentices, you lose the whole thing. So um, that's, that's really what got me started. Well, once you decided to go all in and, and to become an apprentice, what, what was that first apprenticeship like? Well, it took, it took several years for that to happen. Um, one of the boat builders I met in 1990 really, really intrigued me. He was the last builder of a very iconic little boat called a Taraibune, or tub boat, uh, on Sato Island, a remote island in the Sea of Japan. And the boat is literally a barrel. It's half a barrel. Um, and he was the last builder. And um, I met him that first trip and came back uh, in, in 1992 and 1994 and did a series of interviews with him with an interpreter that I hired. Um, and what I realized was that that he just, he really couldn't talk about his work. 
Um, all he could do was demonstrate it. And slowly I realized that the only way I was going to be able to document the craft was to get inside it and become an apprentice. And it was on that third visit in 1994 that uh, Mr. Fuji, at the very end of the visit, asked me to be his apprentice. And I came back in 1996, and he and I uh, built a tub boat together. And um, that documentation work eventually resulted in my first book um, on how to build those boats. And that was the very first documentation that had ever been done uh, of, of how to build tub boats. And uh, I'm actually fairly well known among the barrel making people in Japan because it's 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 really the only work uh, that documents traditional Japanese barrel making. Um, but what what was it like? Well, the big shock was, and this was repeated in all of my apprenticeships um, with various craftspeople, was that Mr. Fuji demanded complete silence in the workshop. And that was something that I would hear the first day on the job over and over and over again, which was, there will be no speaking in the workshop. And to Westerners, of course, that begs the question, how am I supposed to learn? Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. And what I tell my college students, because I, I teach a, uh, I've developed a Japanese boat building class um, for uh, colleges here. What I tell my college students is the Japanese apprenticeship is based on the notion that the teacher refuses to teach, but the apprentice is required to learn. Wow. And essentially what that means is what's expected of the apprentice in Japan is that you learn by observation. So while you are sweeping, while you are fetching, while you are sharpening, um, you are expected to have one eye on your master, and you're expected to be, you know, inculcating those skills and those techniques so that when the day comes and the master says, now you do it, you are expected to do it and, and do it perfectly. But that and, seems and like I've it would take through... so much longer than, you know, being able to ask a question, why are you doing that? And What's that under there? What's that, yeah. you know, that kind of thing? Well, and you're absolutely right. And, and really, it's, it's made me realize the degree to which what we've tried to do in the West is make everything efficient. You know, make it as efficient as possible. And it's not surprising to me at all that that's your reaction, which is that that would take forever. And in fact, the traditional boat building apprenticeship in Japan lasted six years. I've met boat builders who told me their apprenticeship was 10 years, okay? Huh. And that's, that's, that's straight across Japanese crafts. You'll find, you know, three to 10 years uh, will be what masters will tell you it takes to learn the craft. And, yes, it is terribly inefficient. However, the difference in Japan is that the, ed- the apprentice education is a values-based education. And so that's something that, that I think we've stripped out of Western education. Nobody talks about yeah, values yeah. when you enter and an elementary you school You mean classroom. like morality? Or, or I mean, what do you mean by va- values? Well, the values are, so the values that are taught, so if you imagine yourself that apprentice, and you are sweeping and sharpening and fetching and desperately watching your master, you are honing your skills at observation, you are developing values of obedience, of concentration, of patience, of perseverance. And, you know, I think all of us can agree those are, those are really good values to have or good skills to have, but those are really deeply embedded in Japanese craft education. And what the belief is that until you possess those values, there's absolutely no point in actually putting you to work and, you know, and, and, and having you presume to be a craftsperson. 
so well, I'm just still trying to let really me let me get answers for that that long arduous apprenticeship. Yeah, but haven't you done multiple apprenticeships? And if they each last for years, I, I'm just trying to do the math here. I, I'm an American. Yeah, no. I'm about efficiency, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so so my you know I call them apprenticeships, and I call myself an apprentice because there's really no there's really no other word for me in Japanese in terms of studying a craft. Um, I so there's two big differences. So my quote-unquote apprenticeships, they lasted for the time it took for me to build one boat with my teacher. So in the case of the tub boat, that was less than two weeks. Uh, in the case of the boat I built with my teacher in Tokyo, that was seven months. So my apprenticeships have averaged about six to eight weeks in length. Now, the other major difference is I came into this setting as an experienced boat builder, mm. okay? The typical apprentice 100 years ago walked in as a 14-year-old, literally knowing nothing. And so I entered into these apprenticeships. You know, I knew how to sharpen the tools. I knew how to use the tools. I knew how to put boats together. I, at least at the outset, I didn't know all the ins and outs of putting Japanese boats together, but I knew how to use tools and so on. However, it's every one of my teachers, almost without exception, um, uh, only until quite recently, all of my teachers, though, the first tool they handed me was the broom. <laughs> and in one case, all I did was sweep and fetch for the first three weeks. Uh, but Which again, is quite a demotion for you, having been the master boat builder in, in San Francisco. <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't, I don't call myself a master, so please, please don't use that, that term. I've, the Japanese have influenced me uh, in that, that that term is reserved for, for someone with a lot more uh, boats under their belt than I have. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, the demotion, that, that's, very, that's a very good question. Uh, I like to say that the very first lesson taught in the Japanese apprenticeship is humility. And my teachers made it absolutely clear that I knew nothing. And they even went so far as to straight up tell me that. <laughs> um, and that's not true, but in a sense, it's, it's both not true, but in a sense, it's necessary. And it's something I try to communicate when I teach here in America, is that, you know, true learning happens when you come from that place of humility. And I like to say, because I've actually, oddly enough, I've actually taught Japanese apprentices. I've, I've now built boats in Japan and brought Japanese apprentices in on those projects. And I'm really struck by what incredible students they are and that they walk into that setting and it, it's, just, it, it's just pervasive, that sense of obedience, concentration, perseverance, patience, and so on. And they, they really know how to learn. And what I notice in contrast when I teach in my own culture is there's often a lot of resistance. You know, a student will say, well, I already know how to do that, or I've done that before, or, what, or I'm bored, or I want to do something <laughs> else. And it's so interesting to see that, no, you know, if you really want to learn, you need to step outside your ego, set your ego aside, and that's when you're ready to sort of open your heart and your hands and your mind and really learn. And, and that, was, that was a process for me. I mean, that, that, I have a strong ego, and, and uh, you know, it, it, took, it took a few different apprenticeships in Japan for me to really finally get it. Um, and I am... I am very grateful to my teachers for humbling me. Let's talk for a few minutes about the boats themselves. Sure. You, you mentioned what I think was my favorite um, in in researching this the the tub boat, which is like a half a barrel. Um, half a barrel. And and um, but so what? Tell us kind of what size are these, and how much do they differ across um, across Japan? I mean, if you're building them in a matter of weeks, are these small boats um, for just yeah. a couple people? So in, yeah. My, in my work, all the boats, uh, the boats have run up to about 30 feet in length. And so all the boats except for one, uh, and I've had nine teachers uh, in Japan, and I, I'll point out that I'm the only apprentice for seven 
of my nine teachers. Mm. So that really, uh, and my teachers were all in their 70s and 80s when I worked with them. So it sort of puts in a stark, um, uh, stark view the the situation with with Japanese boat building. But so the boats the boats differ from Western boats in that Western boats typically I'm speaking in broad terms now. Most Western boats are built around a framework, a backbone and ribs that that planking is applied to. And most Japanese boats are kind of the opposite of that. There's very little or almost no internal framing. And the boats have very, very thick planking. Um, And so the structure is is in the literal hull itself. Um, I don't want to try to get too technical. People would... (laughs) <laughs> It'll be much better off visiting my website and just, you know, looking at the pictures of the Japanese. But it's a very simple-looking design. Um, they, they're very straightforward. Very clean-looking, and yes. and and it does kind of. I, when I'm looking at it, um, they also have some angles to them. We kind of think, you know, the canoe is rounded or a skiff is rounded right. with maybe a a squared-off back, but these have lots of square angles. Um, and also, then all you really see is a smooth plane of wood, and it right. kind of seems like, well, what's holding these boards all together? Right. Well, one of the major techniques that is completely at odds with Western boat building is the fact that um, in the West, we put the planks on a boat by sending a fastening through the planking and into some kind of frame, like you would nail clapboards onto the side of your house. Sure. In Japan the planks are actually edge-nailed to each other. So where the two planks butt together, uh, a a special set of chisels is used to cut the nail hole. Often it's a curved hole as well. And then the nail, which is made of flat steel and not a round wire nail, um, and Japanese boat builders don't use screw fastenings at all, that, that flat steel the nail is then driven into uh, that rectangular hole and from, from plank edge to plank edge. And it's really, I mean, I had never experienced that before, so that was a, definitely a big learning curve for me. You were talking about being the only apprentice for seven of the boat builders you learned from. So obviously they had to change. Um, they had to come around and say, okay, I'm going to do this differently. Um, and maybe they recognize some urgency. It's like, if I don't tell, teach it to this guy, I may not be teaching it to anyone. Yeah, how how I, did they feel about you coming in and documenting? I don't know if you took pictures or you're writing and taking notes the whole time. How was How did they take that since it was so different from the way maybe, you know, they had learned it? Yes, very different from the way they had learned it. And in fact, there's a well-known phrase in Japanese, nusumi geko. Nusumu is the verb to steal, and geko means lessons. And what would happen if your master was not your father or mother or, you know, direct family member, you wouldn't be taught everything. And the apprentice would be forced to steal the essential secrets of the craft. And I think, I'm trying to think, I think three of my nine teachers apprenticed with their fathers. And so most of my teachers could tell these remarkable stories about the lengths that they would go to steal the essential secrets um, from their masters. Oh, you've got to give and, us one of those. That, that just sounds so, so different from what we're used to. Can you remember the details? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Well, my, actually, my tugboat teacher um, told me, that his master, whenever he was, when his master was doing the layout for the bottom of the boats, the tub boats, he would send him to the far corner of the shop. He would give him something to do out of sight. <laughs> and he said that um, his master didn't have any kind of a measuring device. He measured with his fingers. So this made it even more uh, problematic. But the real trick was my, 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 t- my teacher said that he would sneak into his master's workshop at night with a candle and he would study the lines that were laid out by his master. Mm. And he eventually figured it out, but he also figured out, he also realized that his master was drawing false lines to throw <laughs> him off the trail. Oh, no way. <laughs> yes. Yes. 
Well, how well, are you getting you your money's great. worth as as an apprentice if your well, if your well, teacher's trying you know, to throw again, you off? Back to that. If you go back to that values question, mm. you know, think about how hard how hard you had to try. I mean, you 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 know, guile was. I mean, I guess you could call it a bit of dishonesty. Well, <laughs> you know, I hate to throw that in the values uh, column, <laughs> but maybe we should. But, um, you know, that took a tremendous amount of concentration to figure that out. And I happen to believe that when you try that hard to figure something out, you really know it. You don't just learn it. Mm. You really know it. Um, but to get back to your question is, so, so secrecy was a major part of the craft. And I'll add that, um, that a minority of Japanese boat builders actually produced drawings of their boats. They would draw their boats on a plank of wood, a, a one-tenth scale drawing. And um, almost none of those drawings are complete. All of those drawings, almost all of those drawings have, have crucial lines completely missing from the drawing. And, and the result is, I mean, one of the ironies is there are thousands of these plank drawings in maritime museum collections in Japan, and you can't build a boat from any of them huh. because they're incomplete. So, you know, the boat builder was the only person who knew. He memorized the, the missing dimensions and could then build the boat. So, um, so to get back to your original question, why did my teachers, why did they teach me? And you're exactly right. Um, I think they realized what was about to be lost. I mean, one of my teachers was a fourth-generation boat builder, and he was intensely proud of his family's tradition of building boats on Tokyo Bay. Um, and, you know, all of his sons went off to modern jobs, and, uh, and I, he saw me as, as his last chance. I know that, and that was true for, you know, most of my teachers. Um, I was introduced to an 81-year-old boat builder two years ago. I was in Japan doing some research, and, and he was showing me around the shop, and he was showing me his drawings. And in the middle of the conversation, he stopped and he said, you know, if you'd showed up here 10 years ago, I would have thrown you right out of this shop. Hmm. And I, <laughs> a little shocking, and I paused. <laughs> and then he looked at me and he said, I'm 81 years old now, and somebody needs to document me. Oh. And, I, and, and that... You know, that's really it in a nutshell. Um, uh, they, craftspeople now realize there's almost no time left. So that's, that's kind of what I'm chasing. I, I want to talk about, in our, in our final minutes here, a couple things. I have a picture in front of me of some students of yours um, in a boat that I assume that they've built in a swimming pool. And yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to talk a little bit about your classes and how you sure. are disseminating this information. And, and then what do you do with the boats once they're made, whether it's by you or by your students? Well, in Japan, most of the boats have been donated to nonprofits or museum collections. So most of them, I'm happy to say, are being used by the public to try to encourage, youth, you know, an appreciation for traditional boats. Um, at the courses I teach at colleges here, um, the colleges uh, take ownership of the boats, and in the case of Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, um, the boat became part of the school outing program, part of their equipment. So hopefully, the students are are uh, so they're, they're actually learning. using it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yep. so fun! They have an active outing program, mm -hmm. so they're they're using it on the rivers of Maine, presumably. Um, so yeah. Have you sent any students over to Japan to have the kind of experience uh, that you've had? No, but in fact, last fall, I took an administrator with me from the Apprentice Shop, which is America's oldest boat building school in Rockland, Maine. And she and I apprenticed with two boat builders last fall. And um, the, the project was to expose her to this way of learning because I am working on a partnership with the Apprentice Shop because what we would like to create is a boat building exchange program in Japan where we begin to actively bring boat builders from outside of Japan to that country to study Japanese boat building and hopefully grow that maybe in a program, bring some Japanese back to the Apprentice Shop in the United States. But but definitely what I'm about in my work, I mean, there are almost no boat builders left just a handful left that I could potentially study with. Um, 
and I'm really pivoting to teaching, more publishing and more teaching to try to, uh, you know, try to maintain this craft. I'd love to, what I would love to do um, is open a satellite boat building school in Japan and just begin to actively teach this craft. So um, the apprentice shop and I continue to work on that. Well, and, if, and anybody listening should feel free to get in touch with me if this interests you. Yeah, and, tell, us, uh, tell us where your website is, so if somebody wants to follow so, up on this. So my website is douglasbrooksboatbuilding.com. You don't have to remember all that. Uh, all you have to do is Google traditional Japanese boat building or Japanese wooden boat building, and I'll be the first 50 hits. <laughs> um, as I'm, re- I'm the only person doing this kind of work. Uh, and so you'll find my website, uh, my blog, Instagram, and, uh, and yes, you can email me from my website, um, take a look at my book on my website, and, uh, and keep in touch and get in touch. I'm more than happy to um, share the information I have and answer questions. And, hey, you know, if somebody's really interested in, and willing to show, show that perseverance, demonstrate some values, um, I'd be happy to consider taking people to Japan and, and trying to keep this craft alive. Our guest has been Douglas Brooks, and he's the author of Japanese Wooden Boat Building. We'll put a link to his website on our website at byuradio.org. Douglas, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you, and those, those were really great questions, and I appreciate it. This is Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. And I'm Marcus Smith. It's time now for a short break on our show, and then we're going to stay in Japan. At least we'll stay with the Japanese art form and talk with another expert, a practitioner of an art that conceivably could go lost if no one works to preserve it and teach it. Bonsai, the ancient craft of cultivating miniature trees. We'll be right back. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. The experience of wonder, and I'm talking specifically about the kind of wonder that we sometimes call awe, this experience should never be rushed or expedited or or shortchanged. That's my opinion. Detecting and sensing wonder of this kind, in every instance I can imagine, it brings about a kind of mindfulness And we want to prolong our encounter with beauty. We want to admire. We want to pay close attention. So whenever you're in a large museum, if you ever feel an urge to go and see everything in the museum, resist that urge. Instead, devote attention to slow and steady focus on a few things or maybe even just one thing. Don't be in a rush. Your fear of missing out, it might rob you of the very thing you came for. Well, it's not hard to think of art forms that beckon us into a realm of slowness, stillness, steady attention, and the enjoyment of wonder. These art forms, they they invite us to be patient. doesn't matter if we're the artist doing the art or the observer. And a classic example is the art of bonsai. My first encounter with bonsai came when I was 10 years old. I remember it as either a birthday gift, maybe a Christmas gift. At any rate, I I received this introductory kit, and it was marketed specifically for children. The whole notion of these miniature trees seemed bizarre to me back then. But I was intrigued, and the kit was instructive. I learned a little something from it, but it did not lead to my becoming a bonsai practitioner by age 11 or 12. It just didn't. And I'm not embarrassed about this because if you know about childhood, you know that patience is rarely part of it. Bonsai is probably an activity better suited for adults or for unusually patient children. On Constant Wonder today, we have the privilege and the honor of visiting with one of the world's leading practitioners of bonsai. Peter Chan has devoted much of his life to this. He has won awards too numerous to mention them all, but I will mention he is recipient of 21 gold medals at the Royal Horticultural Society Chelsea Flower Shows, and he served for many years as chairman of the British Bonsai Association. Don and Peter Chan founded Britain's premier bonsai nursery back in 1986. It's called Heron's Bonsai. He joins with us. He's on the line from the UK right now. Peter Chan, welcome to Constant Wonder. Hello, Marcus. It's nice to speak to you. 
Your introduction about bonsai is so succinct and precise that you've absolutely captured the spirit of bonsai. They are indeed beautiful things, and they do involve a bit of patience. But my brand of bonsai has always been to make bonsai accessible and easy to the ordinary person, because there is far too much mystique to the art of bonsai. And my mission in life has always been to make bonsai simple and approachable and accessible to people. Well, you have millions of people who are following on YouTube. I think you crossed the 10 million mark now at this point. Uh, You have taken upon yourself the task of being an educator about bonsai. That's correct. I believe in sharing knowledge. No knowledge should be kept secret. And for far too long, the art of bonsai, like many of the uh, mysterious oriental arts, are kept mysterious because it creates some aura of mystique to it, which I don't feel is necessary. And my brand of teaching is to make it simple. And uh, that's what most people like about my approach to teaching bonsai. Well, sometimes if we are newcomers to an art, we feel a little inhibited, we feel a little intimidated. And I, I know you're trying to help people not feel that way. I'm wondering if... Perhaps you could uh, admit that beginners are going to make beginners' mistakes. Yes, I'm sure there are mistakes along the way. And uh, like in life, we learn from our mistakes. And of course, mistakes should never be looked upon as setbacks. They are a bridging uh, point to taking you further. So it's only from making mistakes that you learn. So no matter if you... Uh, don't succeed in germinating seeds or growing a tree. Uh, You've learned from that. So the next time you do that, you won't commit the same mistake twice. I remember once when I started the nursery back in uh, the mid-'80s. We started our nursery in 1985, and a lady bought a beautiful bonsai, one of these red-leaf maples from our nursery. It was an exquisite tree, and she bought it because it looked nice. But she brought it back to me after three days, and it was completely dried up. And I asked her, what happened to the tree? And she said, I forgot to water it, because you didn't tell me to water the tree. So there you are. (laughs) That's that's a fundamental mistake for a beginner to make, I I imagine. Yes, it is. But uh, I'm sure she wouldn't make the same mistake again. But I did give her another tree. I didn't have to give her a tree, but I gave her another tree. So I said, you learn from that mistake, don't do it again. (laughs) So I'm sure she would have learned from that. And so there are always mistakes along the way, but uh, it should never be a setback to not pursuing the hobby. Well, I have had gardening mistakes where I have really felt the pain of the mistake. I'm, I'm wondering if you're able to just pick up and go forward if you yourself, maybe you've germinated a seed, maybe after several years you've got uh, a, a bonsai tree underway, something goes wrong. Uh, maybe it's alive, maybe it's perfectly healthy, but it's just not taking the shape that you had envisioned. Has that happened to you? Uh, no, fortunately, I haven't made very many mistakes. Plants are very forgiving. If you cut the wrong branch off when you're trying to shape a tree, it will grow again. It will grow in another place, but, you know, you can start again from a different uh, uh, point. But uh, the most important thing about keeping a bonsai or any plant alive is remembering to water. Uh, From my experience as a commercial grower where we sell a lot of plants to people, I would say more than 90% of all the failures in bonsai arise from people not watering their plants. If you forget to water a tree or a bonsai, it will die. They're like pets. If you don't give your cat or your dog water at regular intervals, they do need water. The the pet will die. Same with the tree. So as long as you remember to water the tree, it will stay alive. And cutting the wrong branch, as I said, can be a disaster, but it's not the ultimate disaster. You can make amends and grow the tree again. It'll just take a bit of time. So fortunately in bonsai, it is a bit forgiving in that respect. What was your first introduction to it? What was the initial appeal? And as you began to pursue this, did you see yourself already as a patient person? No, 
I wasn't a patient person. Um, I've always been very impatient. And I think bonsai over the years has taught me to be patient. What brought me into bonsai may be a long story. Although I'm a Chinese by uh, race, I'm ethnic Chinese, I'm not really Chinese in the true sense of the word. My grandparents were immigrants to India. In the days of British Empire, the Chinese uh, workers were encouraged to migrate from China to India to help set up the Indian industries. So my grandfather went to India in the late uh, 19th century and set up business there. My father was born in India, but he was an engineer by profession. In fact, he studied in the USA in 1928. From 28 to 32, my father went to the Milwaukee School of Engineering, MSOE, to study electrical engineering. And I followed in father's footsteps. So I'm an electrical engineer, professional engineer by, by trade. And I practiced my profession for the first 10 years of my life. But I soon got uh, tired of it, and I switched careers. That's another very long story, how I switched careers. And I became a self-taught bonsai artist. But the way I came into bonsai is not through horticulture, but through ceramics. I'm an immigrant to the United Kingdom. I left India in 1993 during the India-China border war, and the Chinese couldn't find a living there. So I left India and came to the United Kingdom. And in the mid-60s, in the UK, there was a very thriving uh, movement, art movement, in studio ceramics. You may have come across studio ceramics. And there was a very great potter called Bernard Leach. He was uh, this Englishman who went to Japan and helped the Japanese develop art ceramics. And during the 60s, there was a very strong movement of ceramics in this country. And I did a bit of ceramics in my spare time in the evenings. And I got very involved in ceramics. When I got married in 1966, our first home was an apartment which had a large balcony. And because I was quite interested in growing plants, everything I grew at that time had to be grown in containers or pots. And because I was making ceramics, I took on myself uh, to make some of these pots that I saw in picture books of these Chinese uh, potted plants, and they were grown in these lovely pots. So I made a few pots while dabbling in ceramics. And that's how my journey into bonsai began. So starting with making the pots, I then dug up little trees and shrubs from people's gardens and from the woods and started experimenting with them. And because I have a technical background and inquiring scientific mind, I used to say to myself, what if I did this to the tree? If I cut off this branch, well, it'll go somewhere else. And just by trial and error, I developed all these different techniques of shaping and growing trees. And that's how my experience with bonsai began. And because they were genuine first-hand experiences of growing trees by experimentation. I was able to write about my experiences in books, and that's why my books appeal to so many people, because they are down to earth, without mystique, how to grow these plants in these um, artistic shapes. And this is how my bonsai developed. I'm very fond of the idea that you're self-taught. Having said that, do you ever think I could have saved a lot of time just by tapping into the expertise that already existed in the world? I mean, the, the art form of bonsai is millennia old. Yes, I'm sure that uh, is possible. But because I was already a professional engineer, I was doing a nine-to-five job, my vanilla job, as it were. I couldn't spare time to change my career. There are nowadays lots of people, a lot of young people, especially from the United States of America, who go to Japan, serve a five-year apprenticeship, and become great bonsai uh, practitioners. And they are real bonsai professionals. But for the likes of amateurs who dabble in the art of bonsai purely as a hobby, the way to do it is just to do it part-time. And that's what I happen to do. And by doing it part-time, I soon discovered by the mid-70s and certainly by the early 80s, I was better at the game than a lot of the professionals were. So I found that I had a natural talent, God-given talent, to create these lovely things. 
so although I, I've never regretted not going to professional school because I couldn't have had the time to do it because it was too late in my life to do it. But I'm glad that I was able to discover these techniques for myself. And of course, by reading books and looking at pictures, you can soon configure how it is done. If you have an inquiring mind, you can always figure out how did this guy do this, you know? He must have done this technique, that technique. So it doesn't take a lot to learn what to do it. As they say, it's not rocket science. Bonsai is not rocket science. Is there an aspect of the techniques where in the pruning, both above the soil level and the root pruning, where you lift it out and you prune off roots, is there a, an aspect of trepidation where you're just worried? Or do you have you, obviously, you've gotten to the point where you've mastered this, but do you remember a time when you thought, I'm, I'm hesitant to make these cuts? Uh, I think the root pruning still frightens a lot of people. I think I did experience some trepidation when I first started trimming the roots. But when you uh, discover that by pruning the roots, the tree certainly doesn't die. In fact, it stimulates the tree to growing better. So once you overcome that initial fear and you know that the thing won't die, uh, you are at liberty to try all sorts of new things. So it's just... Uh, a trick that you learn, you know, it's like any other trick. It's it's not uh, a secret. I've been surprised sometimes at nurseries to see the way a nursery uh, a person, an employee, might lift something from the pot, and I hold it very gingerly and very delicately, and I'm afraid that I'm going to hurt the thing. And I suppose some plants are fragile that way. Are are are, are you uh, kind of aggressive? Are you able to just, or, or, or are you cautious as you as you lift something from its ceramic? No, pot? I'm quite aggressive. I remember in the '80s when I used to do quite a few television shows with other gardening television presenters, uh, they never considered cutting the root because they thought it would harm the plant. But when you analyze it, when people uh, sell plants which are grown in containers, they're lifted from the ground and the roots are cut to fit the pot. So uh, what difference is that from, you know, lifting a tree out of a bonsai pot and cutting the roots and putting it back in the same pot? It's no different. So if you look at the thing logically, and analyze what you've done, uh, you will see that it doesn't harm the tree. Peter Chan is an award-winning expert bonsai artist, and he has quite an interesting life story in its own right. Born in India to a family with Chinese heritage, spent most of his life actually in the UK as an electrical engineer. We're going to take a short break and then come back to Peter Chan to hear a sad story with Is it a spoiler if I tell you it's a happy ending? A story of bonsai theft. Peter Chan will tell it. Stay tuned to Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. I still remember it like yesterday. I received it in the mail, a mail-order bonsai kit. And my story doesn't really play out very well. I I had to germinate seeds, apparently, before I could even get going on the hobby. And the germination thing, that didn't go so well for me. I could have used someone like Peter Chan, our current guest, on Constant Wonder. Peter Chan, an award-winning bonsai artist in Great Britain. And before we get to the story of the great bonsai theft, we're going to talk with him now uh, about the art, the way it's changed over time, even within the past century. The bonsai that we see today bears not much resemblance to what they were doing even, say, 100 years back in the 1920s. A lot of the bonsai that were produced in China and Japan are quite different from what they look like today. So the aesthetics do change in detail, but the styles are now more naturalistic, but they are still based on creating a tree that resembles what you see in nature. So that is the guiding principle. The inspiration for the shapes must be from nature. If you depart too far from nature, then the beauty is lost. If you look at the outline of trees that you see in nature, most trees are different. A bristle cone pine would look quite different from a great big Californian redwood. So, you know, different trees have different shapes and styles. And in bonsai, we try to recreate these shapes, but on a miniature scale. So how does your art form compare to other visual art forms? You just described the, the clipping in a way, the space between the branches. It sounds to me like you're dealing with negative space as well, and, and, and that yes. sounds familiar from visual arts. Yes, 
you're very um, astute in mentioning the concept of negative space. I personally do not like the term negative space because the space that is left between the branches is certainly not negative. That space has a very real and positive uh, role to play in the aesthetics, just as in Japanese gardening where you find vast expanses of empty space you think oh what the hell you've wasted that space but that space creates the tranquility and the restfulness that you get when you view a japanese garden so in the same way in a bonsai tree where you see space between the branches that is in no way negative that space helps to create the definition of the other branches which are left so you can see why all these little aspects have a role to play in the aesthetic um, visualization of the tree. And every artist has his own way of interpreting the beauty of trees. So every artist has his own particular style of creating bonsai. And by the same token, every race, the Chinese bonsai are different from Japanese bonsai. And nowadays, because bonsai is such a widely practiced art, the style of bonsai practice in the United Kingdom is different, slightly different from the art that you would practice in the United States. So there are very subtle differences uh, between artists and between cultures. If you go to Vietnam and Indonesia, they grow bonsai in a completely different way, and that is influenced by their culture. Just as fashions in different cultures are different, so the style of bonsai in different cultures are also different. Does that make sense? It does, but it also brings up the question, is the ultimate aim always connected with peace, rest, serenity, or like other art forms, is there such a thing as revolutionary practices where somebody is trying oh, to go yes. for something dramatic? Absolutely. You are absolutely right. You are uh, very knowledgeable in bonsai, I must say. Back in the late 80s, there was a very famous bonsai artist, or is a bonsai artist in Japan, called Masahiko Kimura. Now, in the late 80s, he started carving the trees very dramatically. And in fact, his trees are more like sculptures than trees. And, of course, in Japan, where there is such a lot of conformity, where if you don't conform to normal uh, convention, uh, you are ostracized. So he wasn't much liked by the bonsai fraternity in Japan because he was different, as they say. If the nail stands out of the floorboard, you are hammered down. And they tried to hammer it down. But it was the people in the West that recognized that here was a man creating works of art, which are sculptures in their own right, and he was appreciated more outside of Japan than inside Japan. Of course, now he's recognized as a grandmaster in Japan. But this just shows you he was probably the first person to have departed from the conventional style of all the bonsais being from the same clone and doing something different. And uh, he absolutely revolutionized uh, bonsai, so much so that today most people are just aping him and copying him and just carving for the sake of carving. So that is a good example of where someone created something completely different. I'd like to conclude with a, a question about a story I think you have up your sleeve about a, a bonsai theft. These, these items can be incredibly valuable. Would you tell the story of uh, when something was stolen from you? Yes. Back in 1993, this was about six or seven years after I founded my nursery, my nursery, by the way, is in New Chapel. If you look up the map, New Chapel is where the London Mormon Temple is situated. I mention it because I know this has got particular uh, uh, meaning to you. And we are just 150 yards across from the Mormon Temple. All right, be that as it may, this nursery is in a very quiet lane called Wyman Lane. And this lane is not frequented by many people, but it's only frequented by people who are specialists. And one day, back in 1993, uh, two guys came on the nursery and kept worrying me about the price of some of the trees. He sought out the two best trees. They were huge pines that I had created myself. 
Uh, it had taken me about 20 years to make those two pines. And I said those pines are not for sale because they're my personal trees. And after about half an hour of quizzing me, I finally relented and said if they were for sale, they would probably fetch about $10,000 a piece. That was back in 1993. And two days later on, uh, a Tuesday morning at 2 a.m., all the alarms on the nursery went off. And when I came out to the nursery with my two guard dogs, I discovered that these two trees had been taken from the nursery and vanished. So I was very disappointed, but I publicized the theft. And because I was quite well known in the bonsai business and in the horticultural industry, many people got to hear about this theft. The following year, I went out to India. I went to India to teach bonsai because I grew up in India. I still go to India to teach. And I came across a bonsai enthusiast who happened to be an astrologer. So this astrologer looked at my palm and he said, Peter, what was the worst thing that happened to you last year? So I told him I had these two valuable trees stolen. So he said, don't worry, you will get it back. It's in your kismet that you will get it back. I didn't think much about it. But six months later, a guy came on the nursery out of the blue, and he said, I found the two trees that you had stolen from you. I said, how come? He said, I went to give a quote in someone's garden. I saw these two trees there, and he said that someone sold it to him for just about $300 for the two, when they were worth about $10,000 for the two. So I said, tell me more. He says, this guy said that they were just sold off cheap because the people who uh, had the trees were emigrating abroad. So I said, you better bring them back because the police know about this tale. So I got it back. And that was a happy ending to what could have been a very disastrous outcome to those two favorite pines. Those two pines are still in my collection. In fact, I have donated one of them to the Royal Horticultural Society's garden in Wisley, where it still stands today, and it's admired by a lot of people. So these trees have a very long life and a very long history. Peter Chan is an award-winning expert bonsai artist in Great Britain. You know the social critique that I'm tempted to give. It's really an unflattering comparison between our American impatience, our our appetite for a hasty execution of almost any task, and, well, just compare that with a painstaking, meticulous care in something like bonsai or, or the Japanese boat building that we heard about earlier on the show this hour. Remember that you can enjoy our Constant Wonder Conversations quite conveniently on demand or as a podcast The place to learn more about us is byuradio.org. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.